Well, now we're going to be turning to the Word of God and hearing Him speak to us through the Word. We're going to be in Psalm 98 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Psalm 98. Psalms are right in the middle. Plop it right open there. And uh, we'll be in 98. And I'm going to invite Tim Miller forwards to read for us. We're going to read the whole psalm, which is just nine verses. And um, thank you, brother. Yeah. Good morning. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Thank you, Tim. Beautiful, joyful reading this morning. Quite refreshing compared to some of the ones we've looked at in recent months. Uh, <laughs> well, today as we continue our Advent study on Christmas hymns, I introduced a study last week. Last week we looked at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, a really wonderful ancient hymn. We saw that that hymn was some 1,200 plus years old. Today we'll be looking at Joy to the World, and not long ago I purchased a book titled The One-Year Book of Hymns. It's partly where this idea sort of got stirred up uh, in me. 365 devotions based on popular hymns, and it's in there on my desk. I made it, I meant to put it here again. I do this all the time, and there's little details I forget, but anyway, if you were to flip to December 25th in this devotional, again, has a hymn every day of the year for 365 days, what hymn would you find on December 25th, you think? <laughs> Joy to the world. Joy to the world. And if you were to go to hymnary.org, those of you who are musicians or, you know, maybe from time to time are thinking about a song, a Christian hymn or something like that, maybe you've been to hymnary.org. Uh, it's an online uh, database of hymns and worship music. If you were to go there, you would find that Joy to the World, they have a list of the most common and frequently published and used hymns, but Joy to the World is by far the most published, published Christian Christmas hymn in North America since the start of the 20th century. Very 
very popular hymn. The hymn was written way back in the early 1700s by Isaac Watts. It was first published in 1719 under the title, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. This hymn was the second part of a meditation on Psalm 98, which we just read. So Watts was wrestling with the scriptures and trying to be creative and put them to verse, as it were. There's some interpretation as well going on, which we'll talk about as we go through. Interestingly, most folks who study the hymn, who study Watts' famous Joy to the World, agree that this hymn is not mainly about the first coming of Christ, but about the second coming of Christ. In fact, that little devotional book I mentioned just a moment ago, that has Joy to the World on December 25th, says, quote, When is a Christmas carol not actually a Christmas carol? When it does not focus on the birth of Christ, perhaps? Christmas is about the birth of Christ, right? This is what we remember this time of year. Yet, arguably, the most famous hymn that we sing during the celebration of Jesus' birth joy to the world is one that is based on a passage not about mainly the birth of christ but about the second coming of christ isn't that fascinating this is certainly the focus of psalm 98 which is a part of the reason why the hymn is focused where it is if you have your bibles i invite you to open them to psalm 98 maybe you already did It's on page 592 of your pew Bible. You can kind of just keep it there. We're going to go there just a handful of times as we look at this hymn. Look with me now. If you've got your Bible there, or maybe you've got it on an app or wherever, maybe Felicia can pull it up on the screen. Verses 7 through 9 now. It says this. Let the sea roar and all that fills it the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes, there it is, is coming to judge the earth. The Lord is coming to judge the earth. This is not what we think about typically when we think of the first coming of Jesus, is it? No, this is usually what we associate with the second coming of Christ. However, I want to try and unpack this a little bit for you in Watts's mind. Watts was brilliant and he reads this hymn in the light of the New Testament. So and he's bringing that into the hymn here, which is how all of us should read the Old Testament. Okay? We should look at the old through the lens of the new. We interpret those things in the old, which were dark and unclear, in the light of that which is new and much clearer. That is exactly what Watts is going to do in this hymn. It's really fascinating hymn. Watts knew that in the Old Testament, the coming of the Lord, again, which is mentioned right here, verse 9 of Psalm 98, He knew that the coming of the Lord in the Old Testament was like a massive mountain range on a far horizon. Okay, so I want to try and give you an image here of of the way that the, the scriptures think of the coming of the Lord. 
Now, if you guys have ever driven across a state where you have plains and flatlands before you get to the mountains, Vermont, maybe, I mean, you've got bumps and hills everywhere, but you don't really have lots of large, open miles and miles of flatlands before you get to mountains, at least not in the parts of Vermont that I've been to. It's okay. Down in the Carolinas, where I'm from, this is very much the case. You've got lots of plains and lots of miles and miles and miles and miles of farmland in the east. Of course, you've got the coast, and then you cross the state. If you're going west, you begin to see rolling hills and distinct mountains really popping up on uh, the horizon. They get the, the hills and the plains finally give way to the Appalachians. And you can see the mountains from quite a distance away. And when you're at a distance, you can't see depth as well. So imagine with me, okay? I'm sure you've had this experience in one place or another. You might think from quite a distance, if you're looking out across, let's say again, you're especially out west, I think you see this, flat, 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 and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, Rockies, mountains. Um, at quite a distance, you might think that's just a single row of mountains. You're looking at it like, yeah, there's a, some sizable mountains. It's a single row, maybe you think. But as you get closer and closer, eventually, once you're actually up on the mountains or even in the mountains, you can see there's actually multiple ranges. You ever had that experience before, maybe approaching the mountains? Well, this is what we see in the New Testament. The coming of the Lord is not a single mountain range. If we liken the coming of the Lord to a, a mountain on the horizon. We see it's not just a single mountain range, but there are two, multiple comings. And I want to have Felicia pull up a diagram for me that maybe will help us see a little bit of what's going on. This, I sketched this the other day, so I hope you can kind of sort of see what's going on here. Um, so if you're in the Old Testament, and this is what you know, as we see in Psalm 98, talking about the coming of the Lord. From here, you see what? You can't see this guy, right? You just see this guy. So this is the coming of the Lord from the perspective of the Old Testament. Okay? You get into the New Testament, you say, oh, yeah, he came. Oh, he's still coming. So the coming of the Lord is multiple, okay? And how this is interpreted, that's to be a, a conversation for another time, but... Um, you can see there's multiple comings here, okay? And so when we're reading um, Watts' hymn here, he's speaking to us, writing this hymn from this perspective, okay? And he's interpreting Psalm 98, which is the right thing to do from this clear New Testament perspective, okay? So that's what's happening there. God was and is revealing his plan progressively over time. And I'm sure, Jim, this is what you've been talking about in your study on Monday night. God has been showing himself and revealing his plan progressively over the course of time, not just plopping it all out there all at once. The Old Testament clearly teaches that the Lord would come. And again, what that meant and the details were unclear exactly, but he was going to come. And lots of talk of judgment and so this was a great day of, of the Lord, a fearful day in many, many ways. But it does not explicitly say that he would come twice in the Old Testament. We don't see this clearly. The information God revealed about his coming started 
in very basic, simple terms. And more detail was added bit by bit. So people living in later times knew more about those, uh, more than those who lived further back. For example, Abraham knew uh, more about the plan of God than did Noah. But David knew more than Abraham. Isaiah and Jeremiah knew more than David. Finally, the apostles in the New Testament knew more than the prophets before them. And the apostles after the resurrection knew more than they did before the resurrection and so on. You see how it's building over time. Watts picks up on this. He takes the coming of the Lord mentioned in Psalm 98 and sees it through a New Testament perspective in a really beautiful and amazing way. He sees the multiple mountain ranges. He sees that the Lord is not only coming, but he is come. Notice the language in joy to the world. He is come. He sees, as the psalm says, the Lord will judge with righteousness and equity. Yet he sees that the Savior reigns now. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. He's reigning now. That righteous rule for us is not future. It'll be fully realized in the future. But he's reigning now. He's governing the world now with righteousness. We're living in between these two mountain ranges of the coming of the Lord. And Watts picked up on this and wrote one of the greatest and most popular hymns in the English language to date. And in this hymn, he's going to unpack some of what this means. And again, I'm kind of painting in broad strokes here. There's a lot more to say about these things. But it's going to unpack some of what this stuff means for us. And what does it mean that Christ is come and that he is coming? Watts gives us a few things it means uh, for his people, for God's people. So, But before I get into these points, I've got three fairly simple things I want us to look at that, that this means for us, this coming, what it means for us. Um, but before I get to those, let me point out that this is not just an a- academic exercise. I know when you're pulling out charts and you're talking about Old Testament, New Testament interpretation and history of you know, God's progressive revelation, it sounds all academic and ethereal. And I'm sorry, okay, if it does. I'm not, it's not my heart. Um, let me point out, that's, that is not what Watts is doing. Not, Watts is not you know, trying to figure out how many angels are dancing on the head of a pen or something absurd. He was a brilliant man, and he certainly loved thinking and studying. He loved books and learned to read early. He began reading, um, or not reading, but learning uh, Latin at age four and went on to learn Greek, Hebrew, and French. Uh, From an early age, Isaac had a propensity uh, to rhyming, and even in his conversation would often rhyme. So this is a guy who was top-notch thinker, right? He was brilliant with words, and and he actually would go on to write a book on logic as well. He was a logician, and this book was not one that was just set aside like a, you know, well, yeah, he did this thing over here on the side. No, like... This was the standard textbook for nearly 200 years at Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale. Like these are, this was one of the standard texts at some of the best, most well-known uh, universities across the world. Okay, so this was he was very sharp, but he was also a pastor. Okay, Watts was a pastor, and when we read this and when we sing this hymn, I hope what we're not seeing is just all these you know diagrams and intellectual mumbo jumbo, whatever. But that's, I hope that's not what we're 
were seeing. He was not merely a man who loved to wrestle with the truth and study. In this hymn and in many of his other hymns, we see a man who loved Jesus Christ passionately with his heart. This was something that was heartfelt for Watts. One well-known writer says of this hymn, listen to this, I love this. This is not mere teaching and application. This is what he calls exaltation. The logician, Watts, has seen with lucid precision the glories of truth and righteousness and grace and love and kingly power. Now he's brimming with exclamation and exaltation. The logic is on fire, he writes. I love that. The logic is on fire. What he means, this other author, what he means is that the logic is spirit-filled. It's full of worship and praise to God. It's full of passion. It's not just dead, random, ethereal thoughts about God. This is truth on fire. Here in Joy to the World, what we have is a true hymn of worship. True hymn of worship. May it show us a thing or two about true worship and draw us up into worship now as we look at it a little deeper. That's my hope. I see three big things in this hymn. There's probably 20, but three that, I, that stood out to me and wanted to discuss this morning. Things about the coming of Jesus. And the first one is this. The coming of the Lord is a cause for joy. Is a cause for joy. Okay. This is the opening exclamation of the hymn. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Joy. Let it be a joyful thing. It is a joyful thing. But notice, not that the Lord has come, but is come. He is come. Watts here is using... Again, his New Testament lens, right? He's, he's looking at this psalm through the lens of the New Testament. He's recognizing that he stands between these massive mountain ranges of the two comings of the Lord. He sees back and sees the first coming. And he says something stronger than, the, than merely the Lord has come. I was doing some reading this week in preparation for the sermon, and I wanted to explore some of the reasons behind that phrase, the Lord is come. What's going on there? We don't talk like that anymore. We would say the Lord has come, right? That's what we would say. I stumbled across a grammar geek or expert. Um, it's not my gift that had written a piece on this uh, very phrase. Uh, no, ex sorry. I hope that didn't give you offense to any of you that love grammar. Okay. He calls himself that. All right. So that's why I said it that way. He calls himself a grammar geek. But here's what he, he writes of this expression. To say, quote, the Lord has come, puts the emphasis on the state of having come and now being here. As opposed to saying the Lord has come, which simply puts the emphasis on the action of coming. Do you see the difference? The Lord didn't just come, he is here. Okay, he's Emmanuel, he is with us. There's a big difference. And this is a cause for joy. Why? Why is this a cause for joy? Well, because those of us who weren't there for his first coming haven't missed a thing. We haven't missed anything. Okay? That's a cause for joy. It would not be a cause for joy to us if we missed his first coming and he was gone. 
right? Why would he say that? The Lord's come. Take joy. I missed it. Your favorite band was in town last week. Now they're gone. Take joy. What? My favorite band was here. I missed it. What? There's no joy in that. I missed the concert. The coming of my band. How does that bring me joy? Well, it doesn't because you missed it, right? But this coming that Watts writes of here, we can now see from our perspective in history. And what we see is that this coming is not just a flash in the pan. It's not just a moment in time. It was a moment in time, and the Lord certainly did come in history, in the flesh, in real time. However, his coming did something that was not isolated or bound by time. We, here in the 21st century, can access it now. How so? Well, Watts elaborates in the next lines. Let earth receive her king. There it is. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. There it is. This coming is different. It is a coming that somehow didn't just happen in a particular place in a particular time. It's a coming that somehow now can happen in your heart. That your heart is a place where this coming king can live. This is not a king that just sits on a throne out there somewhere at some point in history. He is a king that can sit on the throne in my heart and in your heart. Watts says, this is something to take joy over. In fact, he says, this is such a joyful thing that all of the earth, all of heaven should sing at the very thought of it, he says. And this is precisely what Psalm 98 says. If you still have your Bible open to Psalm 98, take a look. Verses 4 through 6. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. This coming is worth a great celebration. And here's the best news. Again, you haven't missed it. You can read about it in your Bible. Okay? It's all recorded for you there. You can just open it up and see and hear and experience it. You have a front row seat to the greatest story ever told. Which we will retell on the park. On December 18th. So come. All right. (laughs) And moreover, this story has everything to do with us. It would be quite tragic, wouldn't it? If this great story was just a distant memory, something we could not experience or something we couldn't know ourselves that we were not a part of somehow. If it were someone else's story, that would be heartbreaking. Wouldn't be joyful. Would it? We would be merely be spectators at that point. No, this is our story as well. It has everything to do with us. C.S. Lewis once said in a radio program, um, it's a series of talks he gave over the radio some years ago, and they're recorded for us in a book called The Weight of Glory. I recommend it to you. Please read it sometime. It's fantastic. He writes or said in there, 
We do not want merely to see beauty, though. God knows even that is bounty enough just to see beauty. We want something else which we can hardly put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. This is a part of the human longing. Seeing, hearing, reading a story like this is not enough. We want to be a part of it. We want to be a part. We want to be in the story. We don't want to just be caught watching the dance. We want to be in the dance. Well, let me tell you, you are a part of this story. And it is for this reason that the coming of the king is a cause for joy. Well, how exactly is it that we're a part of this story? What does that mean? Well, Watts again is going to speak to this in the hymn. And he's going to show us that the coming of Jesus is good news. It's good news. This is the second thing we're going to see about the coming of Jesus in this hymn. It is good news. So the good news and the joy, all these things are connected, of course. The second stanza of the hymn basically reiterates, which you should have the hymn there in your bulletin, um, the four verses or stanzas. The second one basically reiterates what we've already seen. He's come. He is come. He's ruling. He's reigning. And all of creation is praising him. We see that. But I now want you to turn to that third stanza and look with me there. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. What curse is this talking about? All of us are under a curse. Every single aspect of creation is under a curse. It's both something we have done to ourselves and something that has been done to us. It is both. All of us have committed cosmic treason and sinned against God. And for that, we are under a curse. What do you mean we've all committed treason against God? Isn't that extreme, Pastor? That kind of language? What do you mean? I'm a traitor. Well, let me explain. I was spending some time with a good friend earlier this week. Uh, in his mechanic shop, <laughs> and uh, he was working on switching out some tires, which he does a lot of those this time of year, and uh, takes a toll on his back. I'm sorry for that, brother. Gosh, tough to watch sometimes. Maybe I should get my hands dirty, <laughs> right? Help him out. Well, I had on an ugly Christmas sweater that I like to wear this time of year, and it has a picture of a figure dressed up like Santa Claus. And he's saying, you've all been on the, you're all on the naughty list, it says. And I um, like to wear it this time of year. And this got an interesting conversation started with one of the guys that was in the shop. And he said to me, it was sincere. He was sincerely wrestling with these things. We, we all were. And it was, you know, there were several people standing around kind of engaging in this, which was really great. He said, so you mean there are no good people out there? Everybody's naughty, he said. I said, well, what do you mean by good when you say there's no good people? What do you mean in re- with reference to what? What is good? Compared to a five-year-old, I'm a pretty good chess player, right? But that doesn't mean I'm actually good at chess. You get what I'm saying, right? Depends on what you're measuring up to or up against. 
In that case, I'm just better than that five-year-old. Maybe. I might not even be that good, right? (laughs) This is what most of us do when it comes to thinking about moral goodness. We look at someone else and we say, or what the culture or the general picture of goodness is, and we say, well, I'm, I'm better than that. I'm good. You know, that's kind of what we do. But when we come up against God's perfect definition of goodness, every single one of us falls short, massively short. We have all failed. And because we've all failed, we're under God's righteous and just condemnation. We've broken his law. We're criminals in his kingdom. We're traitors. In response to our failure, again, God put the world under a curse. He broke it. He said, you will labor and by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat. And that's what Watts is picking up on, right? No more let uh, sorrows grow. Or uh, what's he say? Thorns infest the ground. That's the language. No more let thorns infest the ground, right? He's referring to that curse of God that we're all under. And that curse is what separates us from our maker. We can't have fellowship with God because of this curse, because of our sin and our treason. We can't have a true relationship with him while we're under this curse. And all of nature around us also groans because it too is under that curse. Think of hurricanes, tornadoes. Drought, blight, all of the things that plague the world are reminders of this curse. The world is broken. It's groaning after a day when it will all be fixed and made right. And our hymn rightly declares that the Lord has come and he's come to make his blessings flow as far as that curse is found, which is where? Everywhere. In every single one of us and in the world around us, he's come to make his blessings flow. In other words, he's come to begin undoing the curse and bringing blessing to all of the world. That is why he is come. Most of all, he's come to draw us back into true relationship with himself. This is why the coming of Jesus is good news for you and me. The king came for you. Yes, you in particular. Let me read C.S. Lewis again on this point. Bear with me. This is a longer quote, but it's worth it. I was like, should I try and paraphrase? And I just can't paraphrase this. Listen closely. Perhaps it seems rather crude to describe glory as the fact of being noticed by God. He's talking about glory and what it means. But this is almost the language of the New Testament. St. Paul promises to those who love uh, God not, as we should expect, that they will not that they will know him, but that they will be known by him. It's a strange promise. This is in 1 Corinthians 8. Does not God know all things at all times? But it is dreadfully re-echoed in another passage of the New Testament. Listen carefully. There we are warned that it may happen to any one of us to appear at last before the face of God and hear only the appalling words, I never knew you, depart from me. In some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. 
we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside that door would be both glory and honor beyond our merits and also the healing of that old ache. That was a mouth, mouthful, earful. But the old ache is that curse. That curse has kept us on the outside of what God is doing. But we can be invited in. We are invited in. Jesus came to undo that thing which has always kept us from God and kept us from having that healing that we all so long for. And Jesus did that by becoming a curse and taking all of our sin and our garbage upon himself on the cross and receiving the outpouring of God's judgment in our stead. He took that curse upon himself, became a curse us. This is why the Lord came the first time to accomplish this work for us. And this story has everything to do with you. He stands right now at the door of your heart and is knocking. Open the door and he will come in. Open it. Prepare him room. Say, Lord, take hold of my life. Be my God. I want to follow you. Help me and he will come in and leads. And this leads to the third and the final thing that this hymn reveals about the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus reveals to us the very heart of God, reveals the heart of God. And look at that final stanza with me. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his love. This King Jesus is a king who rules with truth and grace. He is a king of truth, a king of grace, a king of love, king of righteousness. Does the any of our nations or countries we come from have such a king? Such a leader? No, does not. This is the one who is come to us. This is the way he is. This is what he's like. Joy to the world. This is what your king is like. Those are the three big things I see. And we can unpack those more coming out of this hymn. That teach us about the coming of Jesus. But if you're like me, maybe you're thinking, even now perhaps, I don't feel joyful. I hear what you're saying and the joy is not coming. And I know that feeling. 
And I had a dear friend of mine one time say to me, I think it's a little more complicated than this, but I think he was right again in the essence of what he said. He said, well, that's unbelief. Sometimes we don't experience the truth because we don't truly deeply believe it. But God forgives unbelief too, right? Can be forgiven. His people can be forgiven of that as well. Again, I know it's more nuanced than that. But let me say, as a point of application, pray for your faith, right? Be like that guy who comes to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Be like that, right? Do that regularly. But also, let me say that joy is something that must be practiced. We tend to think of joy as something that just happens spontaneously, organically. You hear some good news and boom, it flows or and you just experience it. But that is not what the Bible or this hymn teaches us. This song here exhorts us to do things that lead to joy. So I'm going to give you a few quick exhortations here. I'm just going to rattle them off. I'm not going to elaborate. Just going to rattle them off here for you of things we can be practicing and and in our own lives, uh, trying to, to embody and live out that will in time perhaps lead to joy. First of all, receive your king, right? Receive him. Receive the good news. Say, yes, God, you came. You are my king. Do that. Prepare him room in your heart. Prepare him room. Make space for God. And part of that's what we're doing here. We're here. This is making room for God in our life. Come to church. Spend time in prayer. Get a part of a Bible study. Do those things. Fellowship with believers. Talk about the Lord. Read your Bible. Fast. Pray. Do a vigil from time. There's all sorts of things we can be doing to prepare room in our hearts. Employ your songs, it says. Sing to the Lord. Sometimes one of the best things you can do, if you're discouraged, find a song and sing it. I don't care what your voice is like. Okay? You can sound like the, the raccoon behind your house that just got mauled by a bear or something. All right? Sing. It doesn't matter. Okay? Employ your songs. Y'all don't get to see this, thank God, but I come in here fairly regularly when I'm discouraged and I'll just do circles around the, the pews and I'll sing. I'll grab a hymn and I'll sing. It really helps the heart. It's medicine of the soul. And then don't let sins grow, right? Notice that. No more let sins or sorrows grow. So if there's a sin struggle in your life, try and deal with it. Don't let it fester. Try. Bring it to God. Bring someone else into it, Okay? and root it out. Do these things and over time joy will come in your heart. And I would add one more here as we end. Joy to the world. The Lord has come and He is coming again. Set your hopes on His coming. Remind yourself every day He's coming again. He will return and will complete the good work He started. Don't be discouraged if you're struggling with something beat up, looking at the world. Where, where is this going, God? Set your hope on the Lord. He's coming back. He'll fix it. These practices will cultivate joy in your heart. So let's pray now. <clears throat> God, as we think about these things, um, these are not easy practices. Uh, perhaps these are uh, quite challenging, Lord, uh, especially for, for folks like us who struggle with sin and and who live in such a broken and messed up world. So we come to you and we ask for your help to receive you as our king, to prepare you room, to employ your songs, to not let sin fester and grow in our life. 
and to remember your second coming. We know these practices will encourage and cultivate joy in our hearts. I pray, help us, O God, to do these things. And now we will turn and we will sing that great hymn. Let us sing it from our hearts, just as Watts penned it from his heart. In Jesus' name, amen.